0: QuantLayer is a software consultancy based in Brooklyn, New York. All opinions expressed by podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of QuantLayer. The information presented should not be construed as investment advice. Guests may maintain positions in assets mentioned in the podcast.
1: Hey everyone, this is Vikram from QuantLayer and thanks for listening to our 17th podcast. On this episode, Faison and I talk with Kurt Watkins of MG Miller Intellectual Property Law. Kurt is a lawyer who works with startups and is heavily involved in the crypto space here in New York. We're glad we were able to talk to kurt because some of the most interesting things being done in the space are by lawyers we talk about how he got into crypto the reg d offerings he's working on one is a securitized real assets project and another is an intellectual goods project we also talk about a utility token client he's working with which is a sort of ripple 2.0 project how patents in this space work and why they aren't so bad hard forks and derivative works and how cartographers back in the day put fake towns and maps and how that's related to crypto. We also get into the differences between utility and security tokens, how founders can structure their offerings better, and the differences between Reg D and Reg A offerings. We also cover decentralized exchanges and alternative trading systems. If you are an entrepreneur or lawyer interested in this space, you will find this action-packed episode interesting. Enjoy! Hey, everyone. You have Vikram here from QuantLayer. I'm joined by Fizan, also known as The Wizard. Uh, hey, everyone. Uh, we're also joined by Kurt Watkins from M.G. Miller Intellectual Property Law. Uh, really awesome to have you here, Kurt. So we met Kurt at a CoinList event back in May during Consensus Week. CoinList, it's one of these platforms for companies to try to raise capital and manage token sales on. They had brought on a bunch of tech-focused lawyers into to talk to teams about raising capital through token sales And uh, we we talked about this experience on a prior podcast, I think it was number three. So it's super awesome to have you here. I think we don't have a legal background. We have a ton of questions on the legal side of the space. And it'll be awesome to learn about the types of things you've been working on.
0: Hi, guys. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm really excited to delve into uh, these issues with you. Just a preliminary for the audience out there. This is not legal advice. And if you have specific questions, do seek out a lawyer, preferably me. (laughs) So I
1: guess to start off, you know, it's always interesting to hear about how people got into this space.
0: So how did you fall into this rabbit hole? Uh, Sure. So before I became a lawyer, I was working in technology. And uh, a few of the guys I was working with told me all about Bitcoin when it was about $70 a Bitcoin. And uh, I passed on it thinking that it was crazy and who on earth would throw money at that. And I just sort of let it sit on the back burner for a while. and then Bitcoin, you know, went through its price spike and uh, was in 2013. Um, and then I kicked myself, I swore it wouldn't happen again. And I was doing a fantasy football draft actually, with my friend who's a cybersecurity tech at Barclays. And just, you know, toward the end of the draft, I started looking into what was this blockchain thing behind Bitcoin? Isn't that interesting? He told me it wasn't at the time and that I shouldn't put any stock into it, much like I was with Bitcoin, but I swore it wouldn't happen. Uh, so I got involved with Ethereum in like 2016 and just really uh, started banging away on it. And I started to realize that legally speaking, the technology itself was going to be a real revolution in how services and goods are processed. Gotcha. That's awesome. So
1: now did you come from any kind of like libertarian sound money kind of background? Was that part of this space interesting to you?
0: Uh, Actually, not really. I I thought it was interesting that Bitcoin was developed in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. But I really came at it looking from actually a governmental perspective. i would always been very interested in politics. And one of the biggest problems in all government is the synchronization of data. And the fact that you have multiple layers of people just to ensure the validity of data, and it's incredibly inefficient, Um, it makes it obscure. And so I'd always wondered if there was some way to make government more accessible to people. And I I saw blockchain as a real answer to that. As it happened, you know, government's going to take a very long time. But in the meantime, the private sector, I think, can very much benefit from the transparency aspects of blockchain.
1: So what is your role now at M.G. Miller?
0: Uh, so I'm an of counsel there. Uh, M.G. Miller is just uh, my friend from law school, Matt Miller. He started his uh, law firm about two years ago doing patent law. So I'm an of counsel there and it gives me a great deal of flexibility to come in and out of, as a GC of various blockchain companies. I actually just finished up a contract at one uh, only six weeks ago. So it's a really flexible arrangement for me, which I uh, greatly appreciate.
1: And this is just a, this doesn't really have anything to
0: crypto or blockchain. So, what does it mean to be general counsel? I've always wondered that. <laughs> uh, general counsel is very much whatever the CEO wants it to be, um, is the short answer. But basically, it's being the legal resource on hand. You know, a lot of startup companies and even mid sized companies, you know, the way lawyers bill makes them really inaccessible. You don't want to come to them with, you know, single questions or utilize, you know, the full capacity of a lawyer because it's expensive. And you don't really know if there's going to be an upside to it. Uh, so the great thing about doing general counsel work in startups is you can you make it a fixed cost, so the startup knows what they're paying each month for the service, and then you get to really you know clean up house, put everything in order, attract investment, and give them you know a greater sophistication on the legal end, you know, so to, as a real complement to the technical end that you know a lot of the startups I work with have. Got it. So what are the types of projects that you're working on right now? Sure. So at the moment, I'm working on two Reg D offerings. They're fairly interesting, primarily with the securitization of assets, uh, one for real property, one for intellectual goods. Um, I'm also working on another project that's effectively a utility token, although it's um, pretty complex. I had to actually call in uh, some help from uh, more attorneys in my network. But it's basically, if you want to think about it, Ripple 2.0. So for the cross-border transactions. Okay, gotcha.
1: The 2.0 aspect, I'm just curious about that. I mean, if you're able to talk about it, what are some differences versus, uh, you know,
0: Ripple 1.0? Sure. So, you know, Ripple 1.0 in the grand scheme of things isn't all that bad. I'm personally very down on the actual token for Ripple, but the network they built, I think, is uh, pretty good. So basically what... This company is doing, Um, they're filing some patents, so I can't talk about it too in depth. Uh, But what they're doing is they're providing effectively like a hybrid of R3's decentralized ledger that's not a blockchain with some blockchain elements, or you can implement some blockchain elements if you require greater security. And really, if you don't really trust your counterparty, whereas if you do trust your counterparty, you can start doing transactions Another way to think about it is uh the public private key rSA so you use the public key initially, but you don't know the other party and then you establish trust you're like, okay fine, we'll both just swap keys and then we'll be able to transact much faster so it provides sort of an automated process to do that gotcha, yeah
1: Ripple is one of these highly highly controversial uh tokens. It seems like you know a lot of people have the similar view that you know the network is interesting, but the actual like token itself is is sort of doesn't have too much of a worth. One question that brought up on the IP side. So I would say that quite a swath of cryptocurrency folk, maybe they don't understand the patent process or the benefits of a patent. I think some of them feel like, you know, nothing in this space should be patented, like, especially, you know, the highly libertarian type. So can you help maybe like walk through some of
0: those concerns and, you know, why it's not that bad? So, Patents, really, in all the technology space, are continually a hot button issue, uh, particularly because technology can be so easily copied and pasted in a you know complete form, which was something that uh, law didn't really grapple with before computers, but really before the internet. So patents are are sort of a dual edged sword. So the fundamental thing about a patent is you're disclosing your invention. So, you know, and if you receive your patent, you have monopoly on that for a fixed period of time, depending on what kind of patent you get. But then, you know, you can take the Coca-Cola route and make it a trade secret. And your code is your secret sauce and, you know, you protect it via trade secret and therefore you can protect it indefinitely and never disclose it. So startups have to think about that. There's, there's a, you know, sort of a push. It's like, oh, the more patents I have, the more attractive I'll be to investors. And that can generally be true. Uh, however, investors are sort of wise to how the intellectual properties work. So it's probably best to patent the things you think someone else is doing or you think someone else can easily infringe on once you put your product out in the market and use them as a defensive tool rather than an offensive tool. And then the stuff you don't think anyone's really going to catch on to or like they won't figure out, keep it as a trade secret particularly in blockchain land what we're seeing a lot of is the major banks patenting everything under the sun and there's a real fear among among the attorneys in this space that all, what the banks are going to do is they're going to patent out everyone and then not actually move forward on any of those inventions sit on it and maintain their current status which you know for the libertarians in blockchain this has to be like the doomsday scenario and um, unfortunately you know it's unsure whether or not that shakes out but uh, it could
1: And I guess there is historical precedent to it, like with pharmaceutical companies,
0: and biotechs, right? Oh, sure. Um, Well, one of my my favorite is actually from a long time ago. It was General Motors something uh, subsidiary. And basically what this subsidiary did is it patented a bunch of streetcar technology and then went around to all the streetcars and shut them down. (laughs) And then you had to use your automobile. And that was, you know, sort of in the 1910s, 1920s. And it was a very effective use of offensive patent to maintain market dominance. So that's, it's a real problem. Um, You know, patent lawyers, the patent bar generally are really struggling with this. They've been struggling with it for 20 years. It's not new. And I'm not a patent attorney. So unfortunately, this is about where I have to get off. But um, I will say that, It's something everyone should keep an eye on. And, you know, if you're thinking about patenting your technology, uh, don't always think that, like, more patents, the better position I am. That's not entirely true.
2: I had a question that's, I guess, not, I don't know if it's a patent or a copyright question, but we do see a lot of, like, projects that are forks of other projects without necessarily the blessing of the original project. Um, And where does that fall uh, under the, the spectrum of, like, what's legal and what's not?
0: sure so if the original project doesn't have a patent you, you won't run into patent law patent patent law is very much driven by securing a patent up front uh, copyright and trademark are a little different in so far as you get some amount of rights the instant you you fix it for copyright the instant you fix in a real sense what you've written down and for trademark once you start using it in commerce so for the copyright aspects, the thing is that if they're doing a complete copy of it, obviously this is this is infringement. But really, where it gets hairy is the concept of derivative works, uh, which is what a hard fork would be. Um, so, you know, they're taking some part of the code and you know, then they're transforming another part of it. And whether or not that's counts as derivative work or new work is very much a gray legal area. So I would say for those companies that have not copyrighted their code, which is somewhat unusual to do nowadays, there's less of an ability to enforce against someone who's hard forking and making derivative work. They would have to be basically making a very similar protocol. Whereas if they did copyright it, you know, you could potentially exert further rights on it, but it, it would be pretty dicey. And on top of that, there's the real world practicalities that litigation is very expensive which is really the thing that inhibits startups from enforcing their rights.
2: Yeah, because a lot of what we see uh, come through like our platform is that there's some popular blockchain and someone else makes a fork of it on, on GitHub because it's out there in the open. And I mean like find and replace, dropping in their, their new name versus the old name and the exact same technology and, and pushing it out. And seems to be a lot of that sort of thing going on. So we'll see how that's going to shake out.
0: Absolutely. It's, it's one of those things where when you're protecting IP and promoting innovation are almost mutually exclusive and you, you have to really find a balance there. And, you know, in new technologies or new players on the market, typically in their nascency, you'll see a lot of copying, a lot of plagiarism. And just like everybody trying to build everyone else. And you can look at it as this great collaborative effort, or you could look at it as just you know a bunch of opportunists. And it, and it really just depends on what's going on in this specific case. And
2: uh, one last question related to this topic. Uh, one other defense that we've attempted defense that we've seen is uh, there was one project that was intentionally inserting bugs into their code and not saying anything about it in the hopes that whoever copies it's going to be unaware and will basically be, it's yeah. going to be bad for them. So wh- what is there any liability or any like legal risk for the person that's being copied there?
0: Uh, no. the Well, maybe, just depending on how, how things shake. But as a general matter now, I will say yeah. that reminds me of uh, it's something we learned about in copyright law. So it used to be cartographers would put fake towns in their maps to see if anyone was copying them, because then that town would show up. And there are a few towns that exist today solely because a bunch of people thought there really was a town there and then they went and made a town there. <laughs> so it's just one of those those loopy things. So maybe one of these bugs will actually create something new and useful rather than just you know break some bit of code. You know, unlikely, but um we'll see. Yeah,
1: that's super interesting. So we talked a little bit on the, the IP side. So you mentioned that you're also working on a couple utility versus uh, securities token projects. So this is uh, a pretty interesting space. And I think the wide public is not aware of a lot of the stuff going on in this space. So it's, it's cool that you're here to talk about it. So a, a little bit of the dichotomy. So like, what is a utility token and what is a securities token? Where are they similar? Where are they different?
0: <laughs> sure. So... A utility token is current is legally speaking nothing because there is no accepted definition of a utility token. Uh, it's just something the market uses. It's a good shorthand. And basically all, all we can say utility token is now is a token that is not a security token. And that's effectively it. But I will say that there's some traction to start defining this and you're starting to see it in state laws. Um, you know, shout out to Wyoming that I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with. The effective purpose though, of utility token is that it's a functional component of the service you are providing. And by functional, I don't mean that it's just some paywall. It, it really facilitates the service, whether that's a non-fungible token or it's you know, part of a token economy, it's going to make the thing work. And a security token is easier to define because a security token is a lot of securities law as it stands can be ported over into blockchain world not all of it and it's not all a good fit and we'll all need updating but you know you still can and so what a securities token is it's a you know a token that represents something some part of a company whether that's going to be equity or some other thing that they might securitize but now it's in token form which makes it uh, much easier to audit much easier to exchange much easier to hold on to rather than you know the traditional paper methods or the electronic methods that you know require uh, many intermediaries so that's like the, the broad scope of the two
1: sure and and in terms of like if we step back for a second and say you know what is a token is it just the public private key pair or that's backed by the issuing company or
0: is it something else sure so the way at least the the law the legal people will see a token is it's some discrete part of data that cannot be copied on a blockchain and that discrete data is just basically the token is the bundle. And it's going to contain that data and it's going to assign ownership interests to that data or you know whatever. And even if that data is just a counter, right? And but I can assign an owner to that count. And that's really the critical thing. And that's that's how the law is gonna look at them. Gotcha.
1: So there's been a lot of mishandling on the utilities token side, especially last year. And what constitutes a fair utilities token and i guess a a related
0: question is why an investor would be buying that utilities token sure so again there's there's not a legal consensus in this um so you know what I, what i say now might very well be very different in 6 months but again you know i think the wyoming law set a good standard it's not just because Wyoming says what it says about utility tokens doesn't mean that the feds agree, doesn't mean that any other state agrees. So it's not something you can like truly hang your hat on. But insofar as rubrics go that come from a governing authority, it's pretty good. And basically what, what you want to do if, if you're going to say, I have a utility token that's going to represent a copyright and then the royalty splits from that copyright or I have a utility token that's going to function as part of some token economy the thing you're trying to do is minimize any effort that you could look at it as a security. So there are several ways to go about that. You know, first and foremost is you don't sell your token uh, before you have the platform built and the platform is operational. The way I you know, tell clients about this is um, if you go to a carnival and you, know, you go to the stand up front, you buy your tickets for the rides, you go in and you know, ride the rides with the tickets. Okay, great. No one would ever think those tickets are a security. However, you go to the carnival, you go to the front gate, and you buy your tickets. And then the promoter says, "Okay, thank you for buying these tickets. Come back in a year, and I'll have some rides for you." That would be a security. So, you know, you're setting up that. You also could say that your utility token has no cash value. That's not always going to make sense, and that's not these are. This is not like a rule you should follow. But if if your token has no cash value, then you know it couldn't really be a security. And really the thing, if you want to think of it in a general sense, is someone giving you money and they're not going to participate in any activities of the company and they're taking these tokens and they're expecting a return on those tokens for having done nothing more than give you money for them. And if that person has that mindset, really, no matter what you do, you're going to have a utility token. It's going to be very hard for the SEC to prove the person had that mindset, mind you, but like, generally speaking, that's, that's what you should be on guard for. Uh, the, the part that you're saying there about it's going to be hard for the SEC
1: to prove, it, it's funny because there we see, like through our alerting system, we see a bunch of Telegram alerts, like what admins are saying in their chat rooms. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be interesting to see in like a few years or even sooner if you, we end up seeing like Telegram chats as evidence in courtrooms related to this because like they talk about this stuff openly. They're like, you know, our platforms not gonna be ready, but like the
0: coin could be up like 20, 30 X between now and then, stuff like that. Absolutely. Um, you know, in, in securities laws, that's the general solicitation. So the security tokens in blockchain land typically get issued under Reg A or Reg D. And those are technically exemptions from security. So you're acknowledging you have security, but you're going to be exempt from registration because registration means you're doing an IPO which startups are not really doing but the many of those so re, with the exception of reg a and with the exception of only one part of reg d 506c general solicitation is not allowed you must like give it to private investors you can do like events and all that but the who comes to those events has to be controlled you can't like just post on websites take out advertisements for your token. And so, uh, yeah, if a Telegram channel has just, you know, open to the public and it has, you know, thousands of members and that admin is talking up their token, uh, that's very much a general solicitation. Um, and that's a very clearly defined aspect of securities law.
2: Yeah. And we, we have seen a lot of the more popular ones start to crack down on price discussions. Uh, it was much more like even six months ago, just the Wild West in there. And I think probably they're becoming aware. Of a lot more of this sort of thing because we do see a lot more. Like, there's a much more stringent list of rules of what is and isn't allowed in these channels now for some of the more popular tokens.
0: Absolutely, one of my favorite attorneys to have followed in this space in 2017, uh, who's now uh, famous and infamous both, is uh, Marco Santori, and he basically was like the meteor of, uh, you know, the ICO, and he went to Cooley, and you know, they started putting pumping all of them out. He's the guy behind uh, the SAFT agreements that are, you know, of dubious nature nowadays and very much like promoting the use of these, but like just at way too frenetic a clip. And I jokingly refer to him as Ziggy Stardust, you know, and now he's like working in-house, you know, and Cooley is sort of cleaning up the mess that was left. And it really was part of this just frenzy of, of activity in the space. It was like, you know, there was this great, easy way to raise capital. You didn't have to give up large swaths of equity e- equity at all. And you startup could just do whatever you wanted with it. It was like a, it was a dream come true for founders. And you had startups who had no business being in blockchain. They're like, oh, we're going to an ICO. And I think that exuberance, uh, one with the drop in prices um, across crypto land, but really it's like sort of like the hangover from the day after, right? It was like, oh. Mom is coming home, <laughs> and now we all have to deal with the SEC.
2: Yeah, and to that point, with a lot of these uh, ICOs, where they were essentially ICOs of utility tokens uh, before the product was built, and you know the price crashed, and the product didn't ship or didn't provide the functionality that was promised. Like, what's the fallout from that in terms of the, the issuers of the tokens? Or there must be some sort of liability there.
0: Absolutely. I mean, there's, you know, the, the general securities liability is like, you know, you were selling securities and you did not properly register them. And really, the, the main concern from the SEC's point of view isn't that like, you know, you filed a piece of paper with us but that you were providing your investors with a complete disclosure, like a white paper alone is not considered enough information about about your project and like, you know, posting on Twitter and posting on Reddit, posting on Telegram. That's not how those things are done, right? You have to give like a complete analysis of your company, where it's going, what it's looking at, what its business plan is, and how it intends to make money and, you know, how close it is to making money and the sort of things that an investor would want to know. Um and then protect that investment or accept the high risk. And uh, consumer fraud protection is how you would go. So this is a regular tort, and it's uh, you know regulated by the FTC. And so basically the holders of these tokens can get together and say it's just like, you know, we were defrauded, and then bring their case case that way rather than relying on the SEC to enforce an action. So those are really what you're left with. The Tezos case is sort of the biggest one, at least in legal land, To follow. And that was very much as, you know, they raised, it was one of the biggest ICOs in the summer of 2017. They raised all this money and then they didn't really have anything. And then the founders like all hated each other and it all fell apart. And then there was a big lawsuit. Now maybe it's back on track. And so the upshot of this is for both casual investor and someone thinking about an ICO is that, you know, if you do it wrong, you're going to be tied up in litigation for a long time. An investor, you might never see your money back. I mean, you know, we look at Mt. Gox. Mt. Gox is like only recently started paying out people. And that I think you'll see more and more with ICOs as, as they start to fail. You know, these investors will want to get together. But then on the flip side, the courts might not have very favorable view of ICO investors, right? They, they might think it was just like, you all knew this was super volatile, that you were not getting an equity interest, that you did not, it weren't going to have future revenues from this. Um, you were just hoping for capital appreciation. And like, yeah, you weren't given enough information, but at the same time, you knew what you were getting into. So that's not a complete defense, but like that mindset might very well jade the sort of damages that are awarded from those matters.
2: And I mean, just based on what you see people saying in Telegram, it's I think shocking the amount of people that didn't give any of those points that you just made any thought other than just capital like appreciation of the token.
0: Exactly. And, you know, if, at the end of the day, I mean, this is why, um, and we can talk about this later, you know, the, the accredited investor, as as I'm sure people are now becoming very familiar with in crypto land as securities tokens, you know, become the way to raise money. You know, accredited investor in the United States just means that you've, in the past two years, you've made over t- uh, $200,000 each year, or you have over a million dollars in assets. And that's it. That's all that makes you accredited. And so like the knee jerk reaction is just like, this is becoming a class driven society. And like, why are they accredited? Why can't I be accredited? But the reason that law exists is because, you know, one, you can't go interview every single person and see if they're like sophisticated, but it's just like, do you have enough money that if you lost your money, you wouldn't like go on government welfare? Because that's really what the government's concerned about because exactly in these cases of rash exuberance, It's not really that your accredited investor is so sophisticated. It's that your accredited investor can afford to lose. You're not buying on your like uh, ICOs on your credit card. I I will say that when Coinbase was offering that, though, I I did play, you know, some games with that. And then I also did with like the margin trading before the flash crash. What was that in May 2017 on Ethereum? Unfortunately, I did not have a margin open at that time. Thank God. And I remember when that was all going down, I was like, this is exactly what caused the crash in 1929. Like, This has to stop. So I was glad much as much as it was a good time for me. I was glad they, they nixed that.
1: It's funny because like it seems to be there's a couple of things going on. One, there's definite bad actors who are just trying to like cheat people into giving them their funds. There was a lot of that. It's probably most of it. I don't know. I don't know how to like quantitatively say, but it just felt like that's most of it. But then there's a lot of people who just don't know securities law, mm-hmm. right? To that group of people, like, are there any kind of basic considerations they should think about? Like, just say a founder just wants to raise some capital for their business. They don't want to give up a bunch of equity. and They wanted to go through the ICO process. It's not necessarily a bad actor, but just they don't know that, oh, I can't talk about price in my to the general public. I can't do
0: general solicitation, stuff like that. Sure. So there, there are two things with this. Uh, so I'll take the first, which I think um, are on most founders' minds who are doing utility tokens, is sort of the, you know, the advice I give is like you can't use your utility token to fund the build out of your platform. Which means that, like, if you're going to take a year or a year and a half to build out your blockchain platform, how are you going to pay for you know your team and yourself uh, during that year and a half if you can't sell the utility tokens yet? So for those people, you know, we recommend doing working on the utility token, but then doing security token offerings. So two tokens, and the problem with this is when one is, you know, those sort of founders. It's like I don't want to mess around with two tokens. And then secondly, the number one thing you have to think about, really in all instances, but that's really sort of knife twist for founders trying to do um, utility tokens is, you know, if you're going to issue a security token. What are you giving your investor? Because you know the util- if you're offering a utility token as a faux security, what you were saying is like, okay, well, you know, I would jokingly refer to them as advanced discount coupon sales because that's what what they were. That was like the the premise, right? It was like you buy you buy my token cheap now, and then when my platform's live, that token's going to be far more valuable. So you can either sell my token, make some money, or you can use that token on my platform. But if you're going to do this bifurcation and you're going to say, I'm going to have a security token. Okay, well, like, why would I give you money for that? What are you giving me in exchange for my money? So in that case, the founder is going to have to look at giving up equity or, you know, sort of the more amorphous, okay, well, I'll give you some future revenues. But if you're the investor, future revenues on a thing that doesn't exist is, is very high risk. So, you know, they're probably going to either take a large chunk of those future revenues or, or hang on to those future revenues for years, or they're going to say, no, no, you have to give me equity. And then and at a certain point, once you start rolling this back and becoming more and more cautious, you then run into the philosophical question of, do I need the token at all? And now you're just back in regular BC land. So it's a, it's a frustrating issue, I, I would say, and one that does not have an easy solution. And it's really a case by case basis. Yeah, for me, the thing about that I find interesting about raising capital through
1: securities tokens, and again, this is me being naive and not knowing the law behind it, not only not only in the US, but around the world, is that it seems like you'd be able to raise capital more quickly from a, a larger group of people.
0: Yeah, so this is the great hope of Reg a. So I'll get into this a little bit. So Reg D is the easy one. If you don't have a lot of money, but you want to do a security token offering. You want to you want to offer a token to raise some money. Reg D is the way to go, and you know Reg D is established. There are multiple blockchain companies that have done Reg Ds already, and there are many services that will provide you the KYC, know your customer, and anti money laundering aspects of it, and you know host your your token launch and even help promote you with your Reg D in, in the general solicitation. However, Reg D carries. A very real drawback that you can only get money from these accredited investors. So you would not be able to do this mass public offering. Reg A is the answer to this question. Reg A is like sort of what your utility token offering would be. It's you can, you can raise up to $50 million and you can do accredited, non-accredited uh, investors. However, Reg A is very complicated. Uh, reggae came about as part of the Jobs Act. It was, um, you know, this big push to make securities more accessible to companies that you know aren't enormous. And the problem with reggae is because it's so complicated, there are very, very few out there. I, most of the reggae's I know, actually, no, all of the reggae's I know are still very much tied up in the law firm, in communications with the SEC. The SEC doesn't know what to do. And to do a Reg D, you might look at spending you know, forty, sixty thousand dollars 60000 in legal fees. You're doing a Reg A, you're looking at one hundred and fifty easy. So it's almost like you have to do traditional VC to raise money to get the legal work to do a Reg A, which is a really drawn out process that is not attractive to most people. However, if Reg A starts working, it will be really the thing I think crypto wants to see. And then I'll touch on it now. Maybe we'll get to it later. The next problem with all of this is there are no regulated exchanges, such that you can actually trade around securities tokens. We all wait for the day when Overstock's T zero comes to the fore, but it's been delayed and delayed and delayed. But maybe it will be out at the end of 2018.
1: And are those delays uh, all like SEC approval related or legal approval? Like who who are the bodies involved in
0: approving that? primarily the SEC. There there are several bodies. So um, FINRA is going to take an interest. FinCEN is going to take an interest. And those are sort of, on one hand, the money transmitter, the federal regulatory bodies, and then the anti-money laundering regulatory bodies. And I'm sure the IRS is going to take an interest as well. And in terms of what's holding up T-Zero, I I can't tell you specifically because I don't know, but I, I would wager that it's primarily the SEC of just not because they're trying to fit it into the bucket called alternative trading system for the listeners who've heard of them the dark pools you hear about and the reason why like the main public exchanges like the New York Stock Exchange are actually hurting right now is cuz all this money is going to the dark pools those are ATSs and that, and that's what they were originally designed to do blockchain exchanges lend themselves well to an ATS regulatory scheme but not perfectly so, you know, the SEC is just showing a great deal of caution in that. And I'm sure that's what's holding up. If you go online, you can see like demos of T0. So presumably the platform is, is working, um, but that, that's why it's not out. And uh, so T0, is that like, how does
1: this work with the rest of the world? That's like one of the main questions I have about these, these, these types of tokens. Uh, sure. Uh, tokens or exchanges? Uh, tokens and exchanges. So like wh- is, you want to trade a U.S. token on T0, but what if I'm French and I want
0: to trade a French token on T0 or like a U.S. token on a, uh, on a French exchange? Sure. Okay. So for tokens, for U.S. law, I can't speak other than very generally about other uh, nations' laws. For U.S. law, there's uh, Reg S. And Reg S is, that's the, only offer You can be a U.S. company, but only offer your token for sale overseas to non-U.S. investors. And so you have your token under a Reg S scheme. And then what you're seeing is some companies will do a Reg D in the U.S. and a Reg S outside the U.S. And those two tokens aren't really changeable, just as your point. And the answer to that question is like, yeah, if you do get an exchange and you want a Reg D token trading with a Reg S token for exactly the same platform, um, you would not be able to do that. Um, and that's like, I'm sure one of the things the SEC is looking at is like, how do you prevent this from happening? Because they're just two two different schemes. And then on top of that, with the exchanges, Binance you know is moving to Malta. Malta is catering to them, um, sort of just like tax haven jurisdictions that I'm sure we're familiar with, like the Cayman Islands, Bermuda, Gibraltar. So you can get those to cater to them and be like out of the reach of U.S. law. I mean, I use Binance. It's not that like I am out of this all. But, you know, there's if Binance tried to open up shop or put a physical location in the U.S., the SEC would come shut them down heartbeat because none of those exchanges are regulated. They're clearly transacting money. And really, from like a government perspective, we're all in the blockchain community and presumably reasonable actors. But if you're a criminal of some kind, using these exchanges to transfer value and obfuscate where you're getting your money from, super effective, um, right? Like, you know, Bitcoin is now very traceable and all that, but any sophisticated criminal is going to know, don't use Zcash. And then we'll just flip them on a bunch of exchanges and push them out the other end, and it will be way too too hard for anyone to follow it. And that's really, internationally speaking, the, the biggest problem and why... Even with, you know, Malta backing Binance, it's probably going to run into significant headwinds in the near future.
1: Gotcha. Um, so I was going through the presentation that you sent me um, sure. on, on Regs, and there was one line that's related to what we were just talking about. For one year period, U.S. issuers must prevent tokens sold outside the U.S. from being transferred to a U.S. person. Yes. So it just seems like that would be pretty difficult to prevent in a lot of these cases.
0: Well the good news is that if one instance of it happens it won't doom you. It's really that you have to take as many affirmative but reasonable steps as you can to ensure that doesn't happen and usually these are done with whitelists. you know, they're done with IP tracking and all that. And if and if you've done your diligence and you set up all these processes and you know, some person in France was just determined to send a token to the US citizen and that they found some crazy way around your your systems with like VPNs and travel or something then you you know what that's something you can't reasonably prevent and so you know the regulators won't won't be mad at you for that but it's just a matter of setting up the processes
1: gotcha but a lot of these things it seems like it's the spirit of the law it's not necessarily like black or white
0: yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, don't get me wrong. Uh, and this is why I did issue the disclaimer up front. The, the spirit of the law is what's going to drive this all generally. But what might happen to you specifically could be the black letter law. But, you know, it, as a general matter, I can tell you that like the, the community as a whole and how the legal community is reacting to it. Law is slow. Law, like I joke with people, you know, law is one of those few areas where you can cite something a hundred years ago and be taken seriously your doctor came in and be like, oh, I read this from a you know hundred year old handbook, be like, please give me another doctor. Right. But like a lawyer might very well present that in court and be found correct because of it. So the law necessarily moves slow, but you know, there are enough lawyers, regulators, and to a certain extent, even politicians who are aware of the great benefits blockchain brings. And they all remember the dot-com bust, but what's hopefully they're viewing 2017 as the bust. And now they can really build on it. And make a new, a new future. And so there is a lot of optimism. It's just moving slow. And, and really, when you think about it, there's following the law, and then there's getting busted by the law, right? So if you're getting busted, odds are you've done something flagrant, or you've done something very showy that like would attract a regulator. But if you keep it on the level, you don't get exuberant, even if you like mess up a little bit, maybe it can be corrected later on and you won't lose your company in the process. Yeah, that's a great point.
1: And as far as what states are doing, I think this was a pretty interesting area that you've been working on as well.
0: Yes. a right? um, big fan of, you know, still government use of blockchain. I, I've been working very closely in uh, my home state of New Jersey with uh, the politicians there about putting together a blockchain initiative task force. I was recently just in Mississippi to talk to their government folks about blockchain's use, you know, uh, land records are by far and away the lowest hanging fruit. There are several counties that have pilot programs or have completed a pilot program, Cook County, uh, which uh, where Chicago is, uh, South Burlington in Vermont. And it really provides a, just a, a much better way for government to do business. You know, private side is where you'll make your money, but I think uh, blockchain's greatest innovation will be to government.
1: And what are the mechanics of it? Are they writing to a particular block? Are they writing records to a particular blockchain, or like what is the? Yeah, how do the mechanics
0: work? So it's very, very diffuse, very early days. So uh, you know, it's it's all subject to change. But yeah, normally they're getting you know bespoke blockchains for the purpose, and you know they might use the Ethereum protocol, right? But it'll be private, like enterprise Ethereum. There are others that are looking at Hyperledger. Uh, Hyperledger is. It's good and bad. On one hand, it's really at the forefront of enterprise blockchain. The other thing is that its members are all major tech companies who would love nothing more than to get you hooked on their systems. And then, you know, they'll charge you a million dollars to keep it going. And like, you know, my favorite is like Intel, right? Intel comes up with Sawtooth, and Sawtooth is great, and it's using this consensus mechanism, proof of elapsed time, and it's going to be like blockchain for IoT. And like now we have two buzzwords coming together; it's awesome. And the way you run the proof of elapsed time is on a specialized chip. Who owns the patent and makes that chip? Well, Intel, of course. And so, you know, typical. And you know, we can hate on them, but they have to make their money somehow. So it's it's problematic in that sense. And I think enterprise blockchain will be one of those things that will initially happen that no consumer will really see what's going on. And government will be the same way. It will be for some super obscure backend records that like no citizen even thinks about. Um, and then slowly it will creep out. And I think that's, that's sort of the process that will take place.
1: And I think w- you had mentioned before about how Illinois is a leader in this area. So what are they doing?
0: Illinois has just a bunch of initiatives they were famous for the the cook county experiment which <laughs> ended for political reasons which was funny if anyone wants to read that but they're looking at basically making putting citizen data on a blockchain health data on a blockchain taxes on a blockchain more or less like all the things that you would want from your government like a driver's license your records and stuff like that these are all still pilot projects and you know when i give presentations about enterprise blockchain The number one thing I say, and the number one thing I'm sure everyone working on this in Illinois is aware of, is whoever solves the identity problem with blockchain of how to create a one-to-one match between a non-fungible token on a blockchain and you yourself, it wins the game. That is a company that I will beg to get involved with on the legal side, because the the opportunities once you do that are enormous.
1: And when you say one-to-one, you mean, uh, what do you mean? Actually, yeah, what do you mean exactly?
0: Sure. So... There's no problem making a token on a blockchain that um, has all the identity information about me, Kurt Watkins, that I might want to share with um, a health provider, with a bank, with my state government, what ha- what have you. That that you can do pretty easily. The problem is, how do I, Kurt Watkins, and only I, Kurt Watkins, access that token, right? How do I prevent someone else from accessing my token and using it without my permission? And that step. It's sort of like the last mile of like, you know, uh, you hear about this problem in mass transit and telecommunications. Well, it's the same problem here is like you can get right up to where you need to be, but you can't close that gap. Not yet. There's been a push, uh, at least I've seen it's like, oh, well, biometrics, right? Biometrics, though, are, are not great. Biometrics really should be a username and you should still have a password because the thing is, if someone hacks your fingerprint, you're not changing your fingerprint. You can change your password Someone hacks your iris, your face, you know, whatever it is. So that sort of breaks down. The password scheme breaks down. You, know, or you can say it's like, oh, well, it's tied to your mobile phone. But for anyone who's used the Google Authenticator app and then had to wipe their phone can tell you that might not be a great solution either. So those are sort of the problems going on with it. And it's whoever solves this problem. Maybe they don't do it in 100%, but they do it 99.9%. But like the the failure rate has to be extremely low for it to work. And that's, that's the problem.
1: Yeah, uh, it's interesting. So India is working through the other system is basically a, I don't know, I don't actually think it's blockchain based. I think they're just trying to tie people's identities to their bank accounts through biometric means. Mm-hmm. Um, that system's already been hacked in some way. Like it just, there was a, some hack of that like this last week. So I, I probably agree that like, it's very... It'll be very interesting in terms of what the solution could be, but the security
0: risk to it seem super high. Absolutely. So the next thing to think about in blockchain becoming, uh, getting into widespread use and not just, you know, uh, tokens being traded is the privacy and security concerns, right? So you can say, you know, the Bitcoin network has not been hacked, right? Great multiple users have had their personal computers hacked and Bitcoin's transferred out of it, though. And, you know, you have the problem of like, Oracles, right? Oracles are providing a centralized data source for a blockchain. So it's like, why bother hacking a blockchain? I can just corrupt the Oracle. And then, you know, on top of that, blockchain transparency is a great thing. It's a wonderful thing. We're all excited about it. However, this is going to fly smack in the face of privacy laws, Privacy laws do not imagine a blockchain system, and on top of that, like how do you prevent sort of breaches where or inadvertent breaches where you know you just learn something about someone because you know they've done it on the public ledger? And so these are these are real problems uh, for widespread adoption. Is is how you grapple with those?
2: And one argument that I've heard even against some of the privacy coins or the like privacy oriented blockchains is that. What's private now may not be five or ten years from now. So, like, it's maybe provably private right now, but in five years, ten years, technology exists to unravel that, and now you've suddenly exposed the the chain of transactions. Absolutely.
0: Um. You know, zero knowledge proofs are great. A uh, big fan. Um. But the, to think of them as a silver bullet is folly. You know, just because it's very complex mathematically, and you know. The, the way you describe them it 's a way to prove a statement without knowing the statement, and it's just like, "Wow, that sounds so cool that like that must must be it, but it's not We'll set aside the quantum computer issue that that some people I'm sure are aware of of just like oh it's going to break all encryption uh, there are They are developing quantum resistant algorithms we'll see that's just like the boogeyman in the closet for the time being but if you if you want to think about it in a more generalized sense, persistent data storage as it is right now, you can think of it as crud versus crab, which I know aren't the most pleasant words, but so persistent data storage now is, you know, create, retrieve, update, delete. And all the laws assume that's how data works. And, you know, we as consumers assume that's how our data works. Great. Blockchain data functions, though, are different. You have create, retrieve, and then you have append, and then you have burn. So... You know, append is is this update, right? And so, you know, if like HIPAA, you know, the healthcare electronic laws says that you know if your health record is incorrect, you have a right to say correct my health record and delete the incorrect record. Well, in a blockchain, you can append, right? But like the original is still going to be there necessarily. And then, how do you delete? Oh, well, you burn. Okay, so we're going to sign something with a private key. And then we're going to toss the private key and now no one can access it. This gets to your point. What if that private key encryption in five years is breakable, right? Well, now all of a sudden, everything you burned gets recreated. Um, And what do you do about that? And so the law, you know, I can give this rubric and it all sounds very easy, but the, the law catching up to that is going to take years for sure. And blockchains will too.
2: Yeah, that's that's an interesting point with the crud versus the, the crab. Because that's something that came up recently with the new uh, like the GDPR and the new EU data privacy laws, where again, like systems are assumed to be something you can just go in and delete like a user's record, mm-hmm. but there are like event sourced and other systems that are like append based and it's very difficult to re architect a lot of them to be able to completely wipe out user data. And that was something that came up in a blockchain is essentially just that same sort of data structure with some cryptographic element, and so we're definitely going to see that parallel. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. the,
0: the company I was just GC of the the nature of their business is B two B at a very high level, and sort of like any blockchain solution we were considering just failed the GDPR out the gate, <laughs> like just just instant fail. And then you know the way we made our system better is it had an artificial intelligence component, right? That artificial intelligence is fed by this anonymized data that you get from the GDPR, which is all well and good, but like assuring that it's truly anonymized, assuring that like the original record has been deleted or obfuscated or held in some compliant manner is, is a huge burden. Um, you know, and they were like you know, a mid-sized startup. The GDPR, at least for the time being, European regulators are gonna be busy enough cracking down on Facebook, Google, Twitter, and all of them that most startups practically speaking, don't have to worry about it, but um, the day will come. And if you build your system in a way that's non-compliant, hoping that they'll just never come for you, that's probably going to be a false uh, input. And then on top of that, uh, California just passed its privacy law, which is very similar to the GDPR in terms of uh, compliance burden the burdens. It doesn't come into effect for another two years, but um, you know, it's, it should be on everyone's radar.
1: Awesome. Yeah, I think we've covered a lot of awesome topics. Got a bunch of our questions answered. One, I, I think, uh, Faison, one other thing he wanted to talk about was uh, decentralized exchanges. Yeah, you,
2: you had mentioned, uh, I think, something you said earlier about uh, decentralized exchanges. It's potentially not possible for them to be legal or compliant. Or uh, you had an opinion on that?
0: Yes, yes. Uh, I was approached by a decentralized exchange uh, based in Europe uh, a few weeks ago. And um, you know they they already had an enormous bankroll, and I, I was very excited. Um, as listeners might be able to tell, I'm still relatively young, so you know they were going to you know they already had like a hundred million, and they would have been by far my biggest client, and I was very excited. But I did some research before I met with them, and you know so when I met with them, I gave them sort of the breakdown of how U.S. securities laws work for for exchanges, and I told them you know straight up. You know, there's a way of interpreting these laws such that your exchange isn't regulated at all. Uh, You know, it wouldn't be an alternative trading system. It wouldn't be a broker-dealer because all those laws assume there's a central player that registers with the SEC, registers with FINRA, and that if something goes wrong, those entities can sue them or, like, at least, like, you know, go bang on a door and issue a subpoena. But because you're decentralized, you inherently miss this element. But then I told them, I was like, I, you know, I have to, I have to go you know, talk to some other lawyers, you know, to see, what's, see what's going on and whether or not you can actually do this, because it doesn't make sense that you'd be able to transact a billion dollars and, and not have someone come knocking on your door. So I went to a lawyer I'd become friends with in the very initial stages of blockchain, uh, Lewis Cohen, great guy. I'll give him the name check. Who's you know been in SC, been involved with the SEC for years, and I asked him about this, and you know he effectively told me that I'd given him the right information that um the law it's currently structured is not suited to handle the way a decentralized exchange works, and so it will instantly fail compliance because you know no regulator wants to, wants to have that sort of loophole, and you know we will have to wait for. Uh, brighter days uh, before we see decentralized exchanges operating in the U.S. in a fully compliant manner. I will say, though, that one, that day will come because decentralized exchanges have so much good to offer. And, you know, I hope they continue development and all of that. And two, that at least one jurisdiction is making a move to accommodate them. And that is Singapore, you know, is the, the great blockchain hub of the Far East. And they have issued basically a three-tiered system for how exchanges can register. And the third tier is very much where a decentralized exchange would fall. So a decentralized exchange would still need to have some collateral on hand in case things go haywire. And that collateral doesn't need to be controlled by a human. You can wrap it all up in smart contracts, but it has to have some collateral, has to have some registration requirements. I mean, there are companies that are developing it. So at least at the outset, you're going to have some central player being able to register. Um, It's just, you know, once they put it out in the world, it should run itself. Um, and Singapore seems to be aware of that. And they're, and they're currently, you know, marching ahead to make a world where these are uh, fully possible with governmental authorities. Gotcha. Great. So where can people get in touch with you? Like, do you, are
1: you on Twitter? you have an email? Like, what is the best way for people to get in touch?
0: Uh, sure. Um, so the best way to get in touch with me is uh, email, you know, like a good attorney, I'm going to be behind on the times. So, you know, it's uh, Watkins at mgmiller.legal. You can also find us online. Um, Our SEO is pretty good. uh, So you should be able to look up MGMiller Law and it it would pop up. And, you know, you can contact me. We can have a more in-depth chat. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Kurt. Thank you so much, guys. Hey everyone, this is Vikram again.
1: Thanks for listening to us. If you are an exchange, a trader, or working on a crypto project, get in touch with us. You can reach us on Twitter at That's Quantlayer. That's Q U A N T L A Y E R. Or email me at Vikram at Quantlayer.com. That's V I K R A M like Monero at Quantlayer.com. I will write back. And if you like our podcast so far, please hit subscribe and rate and review us because that would help us a lot. Thanks.